Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and 18 is, is where we'll be this morning, and we have taken a short break from our series through the letter to the Roman church, Romans, for this summer to look at Jesus on the Christian life, and we've taken several different topics. We started off with looking at Jesus on salvation, and last week Robert preached on Jesus and sanctification, and this Sunday we're we're looking at Jesus and what he has to say about life in the local church, and the only two instances in the Gospels where Jesus actually uses the word church are in Matthew chapter 16 and 18, and we're going to study those texts. So as you're finding them, let me also just thank you for praying, Robert, for praying for us. As he mentioned, Jennifer and I and Kristen are going to Uganda tomorrow. We'll be gone for about a week and a half, and um, I'll be doing a pastor's conference for some pastors that I've met with there for the past three or four years. We're going to be working through the uh, book of Ephesians and uh, trying to apply that to the life of the local church. So I pray for that, that our, our study of Ephesians would be fruitful in the church, not only King Jesus Church, but all of the churches in the Busega area, which is a, a suburb of the capital city of Kampala, would be built up and encouraged, that, that, that I would be encouraged and learn from these, these brothers. And, um, and we just thank, thank the Lord for the Kajubi family. So as I mentioned We've been looking at Jesus on the Christian life, and this week we're going to zoom in and consider what Jesus has to say about the church, this new community that Jesus has has established. Now, God saves us as individuals. That's that's Jesus on salvation. We looked at that a couple weeks ago, and then he, he promises to sanctify us, and then he puts us together in a local family called the church, and he gives us an incredibly important task to accomplish, to do, to represent him, and to be responsible for one another. And so, so to, to study that, to think deeply about that, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, and then we'll flip over to Matthew 18, and then I, then I want to apply these truths to us. I pray that today we would be simultaneously encouraged and chastened um, some things that I say today may, may be a little bit of a shot across the bow to some of us. Um, that's what the Word of God does to us. Uh, I pray also that it would, it would be a, a kind of encouragement that as we see this picture that none of us live up to perfectly. I mean, come on, that's, that's part of sanctification, that we would be spurred on to, to, to desire this, to strive for this together as, as a group of people. So let me pray, and then we're going to read. Lord, we, we just sang a moment ago that our striving is losing. We are hopeless without you. Even in our best efforts, we're frail. We're not here to put on a show or impress people. That's folly. That's silliness. We, we simply want to gather and focus our hearts and our minds on you. We want to think about you. We want to worship you. We want to sing songs to you. We want to pray to you. We want 
we want to submit ourselves to the authority of your holy word. We want to encourage one another. We don't want to just satisfy our own little consumeristic desires. We, we want to gather together and make much of Christ. We want to be made more like him. We realize that there are people in this room that don't know him, that are not part of your family yet. Maybe they think they are, but they're deceived. Or maybe they realize they're not, and they're wondering whether or not this is for them. Lord, even the way we are gathering together will be a kind of sign to them. So make us sober-minded. Make us patient with one another. Help us from being distracted. Help me, I'm weak. Your word is holy. I am frail. Speak through me, I pray, for the good of your bride, for the good of this local church, that we would be built up and made more like Jesus. I pray for our brothers and sisters across this city and other churches. I pray that they would be encouraged, and I pray that your word would be preached clearly. Help us now, Lord. Help me to explain this text and apply this text, and then, and then go above and beyond our human efforts, and may by the power of your Holy Spirit, may you take your word and do what only you can do to bring life and health, salvation, growth, Christ-likeness in your people. And I pray it all for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, you know, usually we preach through books of the Bible and we spend a lot of time thinking about context and where we are and Obviously, we're parachuting down in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, which is unusual for us. <clears throat> so let me just give you just a brief little context. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, the first Gospel, primarily written to a Jewish audience. Matthew, as a Jew, is concerned with showing his audience how the life and ministry of Jesus fulfills much of the Old Testament Scripture. There's lots of references to prophecies about Jesus, specifically Isaiah and others, about how Jesus has fulfilled that. And, and one of the things that Matthew is concerned about, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is to show how Jesus is the king that has brought the kingdom of God. And much of Matthew is concerned with life in the kingdom, what it means to be a subject of the king, the kingdom of God that has broke into this fallen kingdom of the world, and then how we are to live together. And so with that as a, as a kind of backdrop, Jesus is with his disciples. And here we are midway through the gospel. And they're still not sure and a little cloudy about how, who he is. They've been following him now for some time. And there's this profound conversation between Jesus and his disciples and one profound answer from, from Peter. So let me start reading in verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father 
who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay, let's think about this text before we move on to Matthew 18. First of all, we see, we see Peter's confession where, where Peter, Jesus, asks them who people are saying that he is. And there's a couple answers. This is what people are saying. And Jesus says, okay, enough about what everybody else is saying. What about you? And Peter rightly confesses. This is the first confession by the disciples in the Gospels of who Jesus is. And he says, you're the Christ. You're the anointed one. You, you're the one that all of these Old Testament passages are referring to. Whether or not Peter fully understood that at that time, we're not sure. But he confesses the right confession in this moment that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament was speaking of. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And really, in a nutshell, Peter's confession is a kind of mini-gospel. He's saying that, Jesus, you're the one that is coming to take away the sins of the people. You're the one that will save us. You're the one that will establish God's kingdom. You are the one. And friends, this, this is, again, whether or not Peter had a full understanding of all that he was saying at the time, this is the gospel in short form. Jesus is God the Son, who has become a man, who is at this point living amongst his people, living a perfect life, who we know as we read the rest of the New Testament, will go and lay down his life to bear the wrath of God the Father for his people and raise triumphantly over death, sin, and the grave and will rescue his people from their sins. Peter has rightly confessed. He's the first confessor who has confessed the right confession. And how did this knowledge come to Peter? Not because he did better in Sunday school than the rest of the kids. Not because he grew up in a believing family, although these things may be wonderful means of grace that God uses in our lives. But this knowledge of who Jesus is, this understanding of who Jesus is and what he is doing and will do, came sovereignly by grace from heaven. That's what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, verse 17, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, it wasn't your own smarts or your own wisdom or your own righteousness or anything in you that brought this knowledge to you, but God showed you this. In other words, Jesus is really tapping into what he said in the conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, where he says that the Spirit blows where it wishes. Salvation comes from God. This, this, is a, this should be tremendously encouraging to everybody in this room. If you've been a Christian for a long time, and maybe you've come from a good family, or maybe you have a pretty good head on your shoulders, praise God, those are God's gifts in your lives, but let those things not cause pride in your life. You need to be humbled as we read that the only way that any human being can understand who Jesus is and trust in him is by the sovereign grace of God. 
And that should be very encouraging for anybody in this room who thinks that they're far from God or maybe they don't have it all together. The good news is it's not because of anything good in you that you will come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is. It's because of the grace of God. That's, that's clearly what Jesus is saying here to Simon Barjona and to all of us. And then he says to Peter there, he says, I tell you, Peter, and there's a kind of play on words because Peter's word, or Peter's name means like rock, Petra, rock. And then he's saying in verse 18, I tell you, Peter, that on this rock, so I'm telling you, rock, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, this is one of the most debated verses in the entire Bible, and we won't get into all of what's going on there because I don't, I don't think it's super profitable for us, but this is actually one of the reasons that uh, the Catholic Church believes that Peter is the first pope, and this is the establishment, they think, of the, the kind of the papacy that, that Peter has a kind of singular authority, and then that's transferred on to successive leaders of the church, and that there's something special going on here with Peter individually. I don't think that's the case. I think Jesus is speaking directly to Peter, and I think he is saying to Peter, on you, Peter, I'm going to build this church, but not because Peter is Peter or he and his successors will carry some sort of special authority through the history of the church, but because Peter is just historically significant in that he is the first historical confessor of the right confession. And so he has, he has been given, he's saying, Peter, on what you have said, you and what you have said, I, listen to what Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now this word church is significant. It's a word, ecclesia, that means my called out assembly, my group of people that I'm calling out from the world I'm going to build my church on your confession, on you and your confession, and the gates of hell, I'm going to, so I'm going to build a bride, a people, I'm going to build an assembly, I'm going to call them out, and I am going to guarantee that the forces of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, victory is certain for the family, the assembly, that I will build on you and what you have confessed about me. Friends, this is, one, this is one of the most significant moments in the history of time. And Jesus is telling Peter, this is what I am going to do. I'm going to build my church, and I'm going to build my church, and they're going to be my representatives. They're going to be called out. And much of Matthew is about what this called out kingdom, what this called out society should look like. In fact, if we just flip, just kind of keep your thumb there in Matthew 5, but go to Matthew, uh, keep your thumb there in Matthew 16, but go to Matthew 5, and remember the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is giving his most extended teaching about life in this new community of the kingdom of God. And he says about the people of God, and I think this, I think he's speaking about this called out assembly, his people, this new family, this new community, the church. He says in Matthew 5, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You, you, my followers, my kingdom, my people, my church, my bride, my called out, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light 
shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I think this is, this is the purpose of, of what Jesus is doing here and beginning with Peter. He's saying, I'm going to build this called out people and they're going to live in this way. And we're going to talk more about what that looks like in just a moment. We, the church that is called out, that the gates of hell will not prevail against, we see as we piece together from what Jesus has said in Matthew, are to be Jesus' representatives to the world. And then he says something to Peter here in verse, verse 19. Listen to it. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Remember, for those of you that are drivers, <laughs> when your dad or mom gave you for the first time the keys to the car, and that, that was a pretty significant event. I can remember within a week of me being able to drive. First of all, I failed my first driver's test. <laughs> and uh, my high school was, we could go off campus for lunch. And my parents, my dad was the athletic director and my mom was an English teacher at the high school. So it was kind of a family affair. We were all at the school together. I was getting my driver's license test, like the on the street test, mid-morning. And you could leave campus for lunch. And so I told all my buddies, hey, my dad's letting me take my truck. We're going to go to lunch down at McDonald's. So let's all pile in. Meet me at the lockers. We're going. Well, I failed the test <laughs> um, because you know how you sometimes will scoot over to the right and turn right at a red light and make your own lane? You know how you do that? So apparently in California, if you do that and run over somebody, it's an automatic failure. And so I'd, I thought I was cruising through the test, and the guy said, man, you did everything right except for that, and that's an automatic failure. Come back in two weeks. And so I had to walk the walk of shame to the lockers, and all my buddies are waiting to get in my dad's truck and go to the McDonald's for lunch. And I said... Boys, I, fa I failed the test. <laughs> and then, a week later, I'm driving my mom's car, and I sideswiped a parked car. And I don't know why I'm telling you this. I'm just telling you that there is, I'm just like purging myself here of, of this. Think how significant it is to get the keys to an automobile for the first time as a 16-year-old. And what is Jesus saying to Peter here, he's saying, I'm giving you the keys, not to a car, not, not to the, just this physical building to lock it up. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind will be bound, and whatever you loose will be loosed. What does that mean? Well, I think... Whatever it means, and I think we're going to shed some light on what it means here when we read Matthew 18 in just a moment. At a minimum, it means that Peter has incredible authority. Peter has been given a job, and that job is a huge one. He's been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's telling Peter that you are kind of like my doorkeeper. You're my, think of it this way, for all of you Downton Abbey fans, you are my butler, you control the door. Peter, here's the keys. And when you open the door, it's opened. And when it's, it's loosed. And when you close the door, it's bound. So when you open it, people can get in. When you close it, people can't get in. 
That's what Jesus is saying to Peter right here. That's huge. So let's go now to Matthew 18 and let's shed further light on what this means and who has been given this responsibility. Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20. Jesus is instructing his disciples about how to handle offense and sin in the context of the local church. And Jesus says, verse 15 of Matthew 18, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. It's the second time, really the only other time, other than what we just read in Matthew 16, that Jesus uses this word church. Tell it to the people, the called out assembly. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. Truly I say to you, verse 18, now he's speaking to the whole church. Note this, note the difference here. We just read where he was speaking to Peter in Matthew 16, and now he's speaking to the whole church in Matthew 18, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you, plural, not just Peter, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Notice the progression here. He speaks to Peter, and he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you open is opened, whatever you close is closed. You're my gatekeeper, you're my butler for the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 18, we see that transferred now from Peter to all of his disciples, the whole church. And it doesn't use the phrase kingdom, the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 18, but the function of what the keys do is clearly stated in verse 18, where he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's what the keys do. It opens or closes the door. And so the authority is not just singular with Peter, he's not the first pope. He's just the first historical confessor of the right confession upon which the church has been built. And now, within just two chapters, this has been transferred to the entire church. And so all of us, collectively, Jesus is saying, we have the keys of the kingdom. The church are the doorkeepers, the butlers for the kingdom of God. So let's look at this text before we get too, too deep into it. Let's think deeply about how it applies to us. Just look at the progression of face-to-face, -face, gracious, albeit difficult speech. There's a problem between two people. There's some sin. There's some offense. And what does Jesus instruct the person to do? This is, this is ground zero for life in the local church. Jesus says, go to that person one-on-one. -on -one. Don't run around and gossip and gather support for your position. 
The church should strive to be a culture of gracious, even if at hard times, confrontational speech. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. It doesn't mean that we don't talk about hard things in the life of the local church, but it means that there should be a kind of desire to build one another up, even if that is confrontation and hard talks and hard conversations at times. Listen to James 3. James, James has much to say about the tongue. And listen, I'm going to read a longer passage, 12 verses out of James 3. Listen to this. This is a convicting 12 verses. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. There's a text. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and, and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Listen to this. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Well, that, that, that should be read often, right? Jesus is saying here, he's, he's picturing for us in Matthew 18 the type of speech, the, the type of freshwater speech that should happen. Life in the local church, conversations amongst this assembly, ears in this room should be the place where gossip goes to die. Think of your ears as graveyards for unwholesome gossiping talk. It doesn't mean that we don't act on information that we know, that we need to have difficult conversations with one another. But it's a place where love and not our own inferiorities and desire for superiority trump the day. Listen to what, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I know that you guys think this is just for weddings, but actually 1, 13, 1 Corinthians 13 has actually another application like the rest of life in the church. Listen to what... 1 Corinthians 13 has to say. And the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is it's in the middle of Paul's argument for and instruction in how the church should live together, in particular how they should exercise spiritual gifts 
all in the context of love. And listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Now, and by the way, if, you, if, you, if this was read at your wedding, I don't mean to spoil that. I, I think it applies there too. I think, I think, all right, so don't get mad at me. No emails, no emails please. All right, okay. <laughs> love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Listen to verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Man, verse 7. Love, love bears. Love, look at the way that English word bears is spelled. This is one of those weird little things about English. B-E-A-R means to, to carry, to, to bear, to bear the weight of it. As opposed to, same pronunciation, different spelling, B-A-R-E, to like bear, to, like to tell it. Tell everybody about it. Same pronunciation, opposite meanings. Do you see that? Love bears. Love, love shoulders the weight of one another's lack of sanctification. B-E-A-R. Love does not bear. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? And it believes all things. In other words, I think it it hopes for the best. It's optimistic. It's, it's a Philippians 1.6 perspective on life that he who has begun a good work in you, dear brother or sister, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. It's a, it's a gospel-fueled optimism about the work of God in one another's lives, even when we're sideways with one another. It hopes all things for the best of our brothers and sisters and it, it endures, it endures right now. Some of you right now are being distracted and disturbed and are angry with somebody in this room right now. And love, the call here is to endure all things. And then we place all of this back in the context of what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 18. And he says, look, it's going to be hard to live together. So when, you, when it's hard, go to one another face to face and have gracious, gracious, loving, bearing, believing, hoping, enduring all things type of hard conversations with one another. And then look, then look at what Jesus says here. There's a kind of increasing concentric circles of gracious, sanctifying pressure. There's the one-on-one -on -one talk. It doesn't bear any fruit. So then you bring one or two witnesses. And hopefully that will wake a person up. It will give them a kind of ammonia that will, they will wake up out of their sin or disobedience or whatever they're doing. And if that doesn't work, what does Jesus say? He says, then tell it to the church, the whole church. And if he refuses to listen even to the whole church... What does Jesus say? He says, let him be to you, verse 17 of Matthew 18, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what does that mean? Clearly, it means that Jesus is saying is treat this person 
like they are outside the covenant community. Treat this person like they are no longer in fellowship with you about what your confession is, about who I am, like what Peter said in Matthew 16, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. You are to posture yourself towards this person in a way that your relationship with them has moved, has shifted from one of fellowship to one of evangelism. What do you do with Gentiles and tax collectors? You evangelize them because you want them to be part of the covenant community. And now this person, as far as we can tell, is not acting like one of the ecclesia, one of the called out people of God. And so your posture, your relationship towards them shifts. You thought it was one of fellowship, but evidently it's not because of the way that they are persisting in their sin. So they are casting doubt on whether or not they are a confessor like you of who Jesus truly is. And so your posture towards them must change out of love in hopes that as you as a collective body, the whole church are taking this gracious, loving, hoping, bearing all things actions toward them, that it might be a kind of smelling salt to wake them up out of their sin so that they would turn from their sin and come back. And Jesus, friends, Jesus is saying, I mean, this, this is in the Bible. We have to live this. We have to strive for this. Jesus is saying that it is the church's responsibility to live together in this way and to do life together like this. Friends, that's significant. I, I think that's what he means. Keep reading. He's saying in verse 18, Truly I say to you, just like I said to Peter, you have the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is Jesus saying there? What does binding and loosing mean? What does it mean to have the kingdom, keys to the kingdom of heaven? I think clearly Jesus is saying that the local church and the collective members are to act as Jesus' doorkeeper. They are to let people in that, have a, that are true confessors, and they are to show people out who over the time, a course of time in persistent disobedience or hypocrisy show themselves to be not true professors. Friends, this is a huge responsibility, is it not? Do you guys have the same copy of the Bible I do? Is Matthew 18 in your guys' Bible? This is a huge responsibility. Now, a few caveats. Of course, churches and congregations are flawed and make mistakes. Of course they are. Of course they are. Of course, God ultimately determines the state of a person's soul. Of course, only God does that. But don't let our frailty and the imperfection of Christ's bride in its current state, don't let the imperfection of the local church dull the job, the task that Jesus has given his church. Don't let our inability or laziness or whatever or ignorance shirk us, allow us to shirk this clear responsibility that Jesus has given. I mean, how many churches actually live like this? They don't, most of them. And that weakens the witness of the gospel to an onlooking world. And yes, we don't do this perfectly. And 
Churches mess this up all the time, but that's no reason to throw our hands up and pout like a little child. To say just because we can't do this perfectly and therefore we're going to ignore it is like a little child who gets assigned a chore but pouts because they know they can't do it perfectly. Jesus has given, he gave to Peter in Matthew 16. This is how Jesus views the church. It's not some place to merely come and hear and receive. It's all of those things. It's a place where when you become a part of it, you are given an incredible responsibility to care for other members of the ecclesia, the called out assembly, the family, the people, the local assembly of God's people. And notice in Matthew 18, he's not just talking to the leaders of the church, he's talking to the whole church. <clears throat> Here's my point. Here's, here's just the, in a nutshell, what I, what, I, what I think this text is saying is that the, the local church made up of individual Christians who have willingly submitted and committed their lives to one another are entrusted by Jesus with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what we are doing here, we are like Jesus's proxy. We're like his representative, his ambassadors. In fact, that's what Paul calls us as Christians in 2 Corinthians 5. We are his ambassadors. And Jesus is saying, I give you authority. I give you, I, you, you are to make the invisible confession that exists in somebody's heart visible to an onlooking world so that people can say, oh, aha, that's what the community of God's people should look like. That's what life in the kingdom looks like. And of course the church is going to do that imperfectly. But it's, it's not as if Jesus didn't know this in Matthew 18. Do you think Jesus didn't know that it was going to be hard? Do you think that Jesus didn't know that the Corinthian church was going to be doing whack stuff and Paul was going to have to take a sledgehammer to them and we know that sledgehammer as 1 Corinthians? Do you think that Jesus wasn't anticipating all of the junk, all of the lack of sanctification, all of the hardships of life together with annoying people? No, Jesus knew that then, and he knows it now. And yet, this is so stunning. He gives us, he gives us this role. That's what Jesus thinks of the church. Okay, let's land this plane. It's getting uncomfortable. It's getting hot in here. Three, root, three truths to apply. I, I say these, these really humbly. I, I, know I, I get excited. I think that's just part of my personality. Sometimes I think I, I'll just shut up. Let me just give it to you. I, I think Christians should be members of a local church. I think that's implied in this text. You're not going to find a verse in the Bible that says you should join a local church. But I do want to say that as a clear consequence of not just what Jesus says in Matthew 18, but also in, in large part the whole New Testament where Paul's writing to local churches in local cities and giving them exhortations about how they're to live life together. If you're not, whatever you call it, just in our context, in, in the English language we call it membership, if you're not in some sort of formal, committed relationship 
with another group of believers, we call that in our culture, in our language, members of a local church, then I think it is virtually impossible to apply Jesus' instruction to your life. Think about it. Let's go back to Matthew 18. He's talking about this person who's got uh, some unrepentant sin in their lives. And Jesus' ultimate exhortation and command to the ecclesia, the called out, the called out from amongst. So you've got, just think about this word ecclesia. These people are called out from the world to still live in the world but represent him to the world. And he's saying you've got a member that's in this called out assembly They are persisting in not living like they want to be part of this assembly. And so if they persist in that, you are to to put them out of this assembly in an act of combined congregational love in hopes that you would wake that person up. In fact, we won't take the time to read it, but that's exactly what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul upbraids the Corinthian church and he says, you've got this man amongst your church, in your church, who's committing this terrible act of morality. In fact, he's, he's, he's taking his father's wife and he's committing this immorality with her. And Paul says, put this man out, excommunicate him, put him out. Why? Not just because the church is supposed to be some group of holy rollers. The church is a train wreck. We all know that. But he's saying, put this man out because his hypocrisy is spreading to you and the church has a bigger purpose. It's not just supposed to be a place where you come and get your little spiritual tickle every week. It's meant to be a place where the gospel is displayed and protected. And so put him out for the sake of the display of the gospel amongst the church, but also for the sake of his soul that it might wake him up and he will return and repent. If you have a bunch of people saying to you, sitting down with you, saying, brother or sister, we love you, but the way you're acting is not in line with what Jesus says the Christian life is, and we have no other option but to take this kind of communal, loving stance against you. Friends, God uses that as a wrench, as a hammer to wake up a wayward soul because of love. Now, do churches twist this and are they legalistic and fundamental? Of course they are. The church is a wreck. I get that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to live like this. And so I think, I think Christians should be in some sort of formal, committed, submitted relationship with one another. They should be a kind of local ecclesia, a kind of local called out assembly and there should be an awareness if there's something to be put out of then there's clearly something to be put into and I think that's not just merely internal I think it's visible how do we do it here well we we, Tyler just mentioned at the beginning of our service that we have a membership class every couple months we think that if you're a Christian you should either be a member of this church or some other Bible believing local church Our membership class is comprised of an explanation of what we believe. We want to hear what you believe, what you understand the gospel to be, and we want to hear about your conversion because we don't think it's wise to just let people join the church unless we are as clear as we possibly can be sure that they are actually trusting in Jesus. And then we want to try and integrate you into the life of the church, and this is a two-way street. We sit down with people as they come to the church, and we... We try and get them involved in the life of the church. So that's truth number one. I think Christians, I think, 
I think Christians should be a member of a local church. Just, just maybe one point of like, action for you if you've been coming to this church for a while and you're not, you haven't gone through our membership class. I think you should. I think you should. I think, I think it will be very difficult for you. I think God has given the mechanism of this kind of relationship as a, means of, as a protective means of grace for your life. And I, I think you should avail yourself of that. And it, I think it will help you obey Jesus' words. And, and because you're here, I'm assuming that trying to obey Jesus' words is, is a priority to you. Second truth to apply is I think members should prioritize. They should prioritize life and ministry of their local church. Notice that Jesus in this, this clear exhortation in Matthew 18 is not saying, you know, when things break down here, just kind of let the leaders handle it. Certainly leaders have a lot of responsibility and leaders maybe need to take the lead in, in carrying these things out. But he's speaking to the whole church. He's speaking to the whole church. And so I think members should, and friends, this is, this is difficult to, to, to make concrete, but I think members should prioritize the life and ministry of their local church. Just a couple, a couple texts to point us in this direction. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25 the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, some but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's one priority there clear, just an exhortation from scripture is, is that the gathering with the called out assembly of God that you're a part of should be a, a real high priority in your life. And you should take it on yourself to consider stirring one another up. Right now, just have your head on a swivel. Who can I talk to after service and ask them how they're doing? Who, whose name can I write down that I met for the first time? Who can I pray for? Who can I call this week? Who can I invite to lunch? Who can I open my home to? Who can I stir up for love and good deeds? That's written to all of us, all of us, not just people with extroverted personalities. What does this look like here at, at Crosspoint? Again, I, I, this is where sometimes as Americans, I know as a leader, I find, I find myself deficient. You know, I think we think in terms of programs and, and, and kind of organized things. I, I want us to think more in terms of organic trajectories of how we, we just, we're people that have our heads on a swivel. We're people that, that hear this word and we respond to this word and we think less about tasks and we think more about people. We prioritize gathering together. We consider others better than we consider ourselves, and that happens in organic and small ways, and as we accumulate that type of otherliness focus, it has a cumulative building effect, and it's incredibly fruitful. One of the great joys of, of pastoring this church is just hearing about all the fruitful ways that members of Crosspoint are caring for one another and encouraging one another and exhorting one another and loving one another and at times having difficult conversations with one another. Friends, that is wonderful fruit. It's going on here. Let's stir that up and let's, let's do it more and more and more. And then finally, the last truth to apply here is that the church... The church is to be like a model home for God's new neighborhood. Think of this picture with me. The church is to be like a model home. Um, surely, maybe you've, you know, builders building a new neighborhood, and you've walked through a model home. And what are those model homes intended to display? They're, they're intended to put on display 
the builder's workmanship so that people as they walk through this model home would be encouraged to move into this neighborhood and, and live in one of these houses. That's what model homes are for. Now, no analogy is perfect, obviously, but in a way, that's, that's a huge part of the ministry of the local church, where to be like a model home. Now, here's the thing about model homes. If they've been there for more than a couple weeks, you know that when you walk through those model homes that a bunch of other people have walked through them and some little kid has dragged his snotty-nosed little fingers all over the walls. And it's not perfect, right? doesn't have all the bells and whistles that you may want, Right? But don't people come into model don't people come into the local church and say they don't have granite countertops and well, I would want wood floors it's, it, no, that's not it's to give you a picture of this builder who can be trusted and it's to be a kind of aroma to say to you come come live here in this neighborhood that's our role as a local church that we're to live together in a kind of way that the aroma that comes from us is a kind of invitation to an onlooking world that says come come live and be part of this neighborhood friends that that's that's what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 18. Two questions to ask. Do we think of the church this way? Do you, honestly? Do you? If not, why not? Now, one way may be ignorance. One reason may be ignorance, and that's legitimate, but hopefully you're not ignorant anymore. You just sat through hopefully a decent explanation, right? So, I'm going to give me north and south, all right? I just, uh, you know, all right? Everybody alive? Okay. So hopefully you're not ignorant anymore of what the church is supposed to be about. Another reason we, we may not actually think of the church as this way is that, quite frankly, we're driven more by worldly values often and culture rather than kingdom values and kingdom culture. We have been programmed like lab rats on cultural crack to walk into a church and our first instinct is to determine what's here for me. And that's a, friends, that programs us into a faulty, a faulty understanding of the Christian life. And maybe, maybe, finally, some of us have been hurt by an unhealthy local church in the past. And we're protecting ourselves by keeping the church at a distance. I understand that. I'm sympathetic to that. Some of you have maybe even been hurt by this church and maybe even by me and my, 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 my failures as a leader. But friends, even that is an opportunity to, to display the gospel to an onlooking world. The way we Remember what 1 Corinthians 13 says? Not the way we serve each other perfectly, the way we bear with one another, the way we love and endure and hope and believe all things in one another, that becomes a gospel opportunity to an onlooking world. So even the way we muddle through this life is 
programmed in God's idea of the church to be opportunities to present a countercultural display to a world that's dying that needs this type of neighborhood, the church. I end with a quote from just some obscure pastor from the 1800s that I, I, I dug him up this week. I've never heard of him before. His name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It's a joke. And he preached a sermon called The Best Donation on April 5th in 1891 in his church in London. And this is what he said in the midst of that sermon about the local church. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it, a perf- found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. And everybody said, amen. Still, imperfect as it is, It is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I've already said, the church is faulty. That is no excuse for you not joining it if you are the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back for the church is not an institution for perfect people but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. Amen. The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. Oh, God, help us be like this. Let's pray. Lord, I've said dozens of things in this message that probably weren't as well stated as they should have been. And even the things that I got right, they need a, another 10 things that need to be said in correlation with them to help people understand better. Help, help my words not be misunderstood. Fill in the blanks. Holy Spirit, smooth out the rough edges. And do your work in your people. Lord, we, we know we're not saved by church membership or church attendance. If, if anybody thinks that's what I'm saying, Lord, oh God, help them be unhindered by that falsehood. Lord, help us to see your plan for your people and how we're to live together. This is so hard. 
We are lazy, we're self-consumed, we're tired, we're scattered, we're distracted. We're pulled in a million different directions. And living together is hard, God, it's hard. But it's worth it. Because what's at stake is the clarity of the gospel to an onlooking world that is so confused and who needs an aroma of Christ so that they would come and live and be one of your people. Lord, help us. Help me. Help me. I pray that you do this for the good of your people the salvation of any in this room that don't know Jesus, for the beautification of your bride. I pray that you'd help us with all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.